If you've got your Bibles, I want to invite you to take them and turn to Matthew chapter 18, uh, beginning in verse 8. We're going to look at a couple of other things first, but this is ultimately where we're going to land, Matthew chapter 18. Uh, As we're wrapping up our series today, entitled, Five Things I Wish Jesus Never Said. And I've got to tell you that uh, what I'm preaching on today, I wish he would have never said it. And, and And I share that with you because there are weeks when sermon preparation goes pretty smoothly for me, uh, but last week was not one of them. Uh, This past week, by far, was one of the more difficult, more frustrating weeks for me in in putting together a message, and and I have to be honest and tell you that I even considered changing the topic uh, at least a couple of times this past week, but never felt like I could get away from this passage, and it's always my intent, and anyone that teaches from this stage, and worships for that matter, it's always our intent to give our very best every single week, and that's no different today, but I just have to be honest with you and tell you I'm a little humbled uh, standing here today and trusting that God always and can can do immeasurably more than I could ever hope for or imagine. Uh, This morning I want to talk with you about sin, and the good news is that Jesus Christ is the solution to the problem of sin in this world. The Bible tells us that when you receive Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, that there is no more condemnation. And that is good news, that, that your sins are removed from you as far as the east is from the west. They are chained to the deepest part of the ocean. And Jesus means for us that we can find our way back to God. He has provided that way back that we can have a relationship with God because he has dealt with sin once and for all. He's our way to eternal life. He's our way to victory. He's our way to freedom. But this morning, I want to talk with you about sin in the life of a Christian. I want to talk about sin in the life of a follower of Jesus. If Jesus has answered the problem of sin once and for all, then what should be my response? What should be your response to this ongoing problem of personal sin in us? Uh, If you're not a Christian, I've got good news for you today. You sort of get the morning off. And uh, we're just going to give you permission to kind of kick back and watch everyone else cringe a little bit. Uh, but you kind of get to watch this from a distance and, and think about what this might mean for your life or someone else around you. Uh, but I'm not speaking right at you today. I want to talk to those of you who know Jesus Christ as your Savior. Uh, you, you ha- uh, again, I, I'm really talking about those who have made this personal decision. Again, it doesn't matter whether you've known him for six months. It doesn't matter if you have known him for 30 years. What should be your response? What should be my response to personal sin? in our lives. I mean, if Jesus has provided a way back to God, if he's dealt with sin once and for all, then what? What should I do from here? Well, Paul writes about this. The apostle Paul writes about this in Romans chapter six, beginning in verse one. Here's what he says. He says, what shall we say then? Uh, If Jesus is the way, if Jesus is the good news, if he really has freed us from sin, what shall we say then? He says, shall we go on sinning so that grace may increase? By no means. We died to sin. How can we live in it any longer? Or don't you know that all of us who were baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? That we were therefore buried with him through baptism into death in order that just as Jesus Christ was raised from the dead through the glory of the Father, we too may live a new life. If we have been united with him like this in his death, we will certainly also be united with him in his resurrection. And then he says, for we know that our old self was crucified with him. So that the body of sin might be done away with, that we should no longer be slaves to sin, because anyone who has died has been freed from sin. Can we just pray as we get started here? God in heaven, I pray uh, that you would be with us this morning as we look at, at some difficult, challenging words that you've said. And my fear is that um, 
one, one of our greatest weaknesses, one of my greatest weaknesses would be to look at a verse like this and really overlook the impact of such words. God, I pray for every single person here today. I pray for those who know Jesus Christ as their Savior and those that don't. But I pray, God, through the power of your spirit, that your message would be clear, that you would challenge us and move us more and more in the right direction, that you would even challenge us today to think about that sin that we have allowed to exist in our lives and that we would leave here today with this motivation to remove it, move by love, move by your grace and your forgiveness. We give this time to you now and we pray this in Jesus' name, amen. Um, if you have kids... Uh, do your kids ever make outrageous statements? Uh, I, I've got three kids. I talk about them a lot. When they get a little bit older, I can't do it anymore. So they're material for now. So I've got to talk about them. But, but the, our kids, we've got three of them. They say some hilarious things. Uh, every once in a while, one of them will make a statement like this. Mom, Dad, I'm bored to death. All right? They'll, they'll, they'll make an outrageous statement like that. There's nothing to do. Uh, anyone ever hear a statement like that in their house? Mom, Dad? Okay, we got some hands that are going up on the room. You agree? You know, the irony of a statement like that when I hear it is that I usually hear it when I'm looking around at the millions of dollars of toys we've accumulated uh, in just a few years, you know, that they could possibly say, I'm bored, there's nothing to do. Or what about this one? Have you ever heard this one? I'm starving to death. All right, I am so hungry. Yes, we've got a hand up here in the front. I'm starving to death. Uh, there, there's nothing to eat or I've got to get something. And your response is like, really? I mean, seriously, the hunger pains are so great that if you just don't get something to eat in the next few minutes, you're really not going to make it. Uh, if you've got teens or a college student, you might hear things like, I'm dead broke. All right, I have absolutely no money. I, I'm dead broke. And, and if you pay attention to the people around you today, uh, no matter young or old, whatever, you know, we all make exaggerated statements like these from time to time. Uh, these exaggerated expressions, we, we call them hyperboles. It's where you'll use a combination of words, sometimes outrageous words, when put together to really make a statement to make a point about something. Well, as we bring this series to an end, I want to look at one last statement that Jesus made with you, and I believe that by far this is the most outrageous statement that we've looked at over the last four or five weeks. And it's in Matthew chapter 18, verses 8 and 9. And some of you are there right now. We've got it available on the screens. It's this. Jesus says, if your hand or your foot causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it away. It is better for you to enter life maimed or crippled than to have two hands or feet and be thrown into the eternal fire. And if your eye causes you to sin, gouge it out and throw it away. It is better for you to enter life with one eye than to have two eyes and to be thrown into the fire of hell. Now, Jesus is pretty clear here in what he's saying, that if your hand or your foot, if it causes you to sin, then you better remove it. You've got to cut it off. And if you're taking notes this morning, you can write this down. If your eye causes you to sin, gouge it out. Jesus says, I want you to get in there and I want you to pull that eyeball out and, and do away with it. Now, now, let's be real. I mean, if you read words like these, especially if you're new to the Bible or new to church, you read a statement like this and you can't help but think, seriously, like, are you kidding me, Jesus? I mean, really, you would call us to go to that extreme, that sin could be that bad that we should gouge our eye out over it. Now, if you're really new to church, you probably read a statement like this and think to yourself, honey, would you get your purse? Let's get out of here. You know, I mean, can we sneak out? I mean, it's much more difficult to do in the 830 service, but, but can we sneak out of here without anyone seeing? I mean, we already thought this church was a little weird with the warehouse and the pastor who wears jeans and sometimes flip-flops actually wore shoes this morning. Uh, but you might be a little weirded out. I mean, Jesus talking about self-mutilation. I mean, what, what kind of psycho, you know, church is this? But, but, but hang in with me. 
Hang in here with me if you would. I mean, let's just ask some questions of this statement, statement that Jesus makes. I mean, what is he saying? What's he getting at? How can we best get our minds around the point that Jesus is trying to make? Jesus says, if your hand causes you to sin, cut it off. If your foot causes you to sin, cut it off. If your eye causes you to sin, gouge it out. And if that isn't disturbing enough already, he goes in to throw in some words on eternal life and and the fires of hell. And so these are outrageous, frightening words. I mean, this is not the meek and mild Jesus with the flowing robe and the little lamb on his lap, you know, that we're used to reading about, that we're used to seeing in the pictures. Now, if you're still hanging in there with me and not absolutely petrified yet, take out your plastic fork. You should have got a plastic fork when you came in today. And no, we're not having pancakes, although pancakes would sure taste good right now. But I want you to take out that plastic fork for a second. And here's what I want you to do. And I want you to be really careful in this because we didn't sign waiver forms here this morning. I want you to take that fork and I want you to hold it up to your eye. Okay, and if you have glasses on, you might have to make an adjustment here. I want everyone to do this. Get your fork out. Hold it up to your eye. You can go ahead and close your eye. All right, make sure you do that. We don't want anyone hurt. And parents, help your kids. Make sure they don't do this at home. But take that fork and just allow the tines of that fork to touch your eyelid for a second. Okay, everybody's playing. And while you're doing that, hold it there. I got to get a picture of this because my friends won't believe the types of things I can get you to do. No, I'm just kidding. We won't do that. But, but hold it there. Everybody hold it there for just a second. Hold the tines of that fork up to your eye. And as you do that, uh, listen to the words of this passage. Again, Matthew 18, 8 and 9, as written in the message version. Here's what he writes. If your hand or your foot gets in the way of God, chop it off and throw it away. You're better off maimed or lame and alive than the proud owners of two hands and two feet, godless in a furnace of eternal fire. And if your eye distracts you from God, pull it out and throw it away. You're better off one-eyed and alive than exercising your 20-20 vision from inside the fire of hell. All right, you can take your fork down because you look ridiculous. And, uh, and if it got lodged in there, then you know Jesus was really speaking to you when we were reading that verse. Just kidding. But no, seriously, what's Jesus saying? I mean, what's he getting at with these outrageous words for us? Well, you'll be happy to know that Jesus wasn't promoting self-mutilation because he's speaking figuratively here as he knows that no part of our body or your body can cause you to sin. And so removing any one part of your body will not keep you from sinning. Well, what's he saying then? Well, combine these words with the words of the Apostle Paul from just a moment ago. Christian or not, Jesus is saying sin is a problem. Sin is a problem for us. It's an ongoing problem. And Jesus knows that it wrecks lives and that it can get in the way of your relationship with God, my relationship with God. And with these strong words, Jesus is urging, he is pleading with you and me to do whatever it takes to remove and to avoid sin in our lives. Now, why is this a big deal? Well, for too many of us, I think we're caught up into believing that that sin is only a big deal if you break a law or if somebody gets abused or ripped off financially. And so we're quick to say that if it isn't one of these, then it really isn't a big deal. Uh, We know that it's not a popular word in our culture. In fact, there are many churches and many pastors that avoid preaching on it altogether. But Jesus comes right out here and acknowledges for us that sin is a big deal. And that it is capable of damaging your relationship with God. And not only does sin damage our relationship with God, but if you're taking notes, write this down. Sin distances us from God. As a follower of Jesus Christ, won over by God, sin distances you in your relationship with God. Now, it doesn't make him love you any less. And it's so important that you hear me say that. 
with everything else that we're going to talk about today, that, that sin doesn't make him love you any less. But it does have the ability of distancing us in our relationship with him. It puts relational distance between us and our Father in heaven. Now, maybe no particular sin feels like big enough that the consequences should require that you lose an eye or lose a hand or a foot over it. But I do think that we're all guilty from time to time. I know that I am of totally underestimating how serious sin is to God. And I'm really wondering what it will take for you and me to see personal sin as seriously as Jesus did. Um, Anyone grow up Catholic? Uh, Anyone here grow up Catholic? All right, we have some around the room. Uh, If you grew up Catholic uh, and you paid attention, uh, you were taught about the difference between moral and venial sins. Two types of sins categorized, moral and venial, two different kinds of them. And the basic teaching was that there were sins to avoid and there were sins that weren't quite as big of a deal. They weren't quite as serious. Now, even if you didn't grow up Catholic, we do that all the time, don't we? I mean, we're all guilty. I'm guilty of categorizing particular sins, you know, especially when you hear people do them. Uh, we, we tend to single out certain sins. And so you'll hear people say, did you hear what he did? Yeah, she did that. I mean, can you believe that? I mean, I never really thought that she would do that, but she did. I mean, she did that. And, and so we think along those lines. You know, we, we, we think that, that if you do this or that, well, then your relationship with God is at risk. But, but if you just do those particular types of sins, those certain sins, well, then it's not really that big of a deal. I mean, don't we rationalize things that way? I, I think we do it all the time. But, but notice what Jesus doesn't say. He doesn't say that if you sin in a big way, meaning a big daddy sin, all right? I mean, you know, the big time category, you know, because of your eye, gouge it out because that's a big one. You know, I'm only asking you to take those steps if you really make a big mistake in your life. But if you commit one of those baby sins, just just pluck out a few eyelashes or something, you know, get a facial over it, you know, just to change things up. He doesn't say that, does he? He just says sin. And so the question is, do you and I really understand the severity of our sins? the choices that we make. I mean, because that's the point that Jesus is trying to make. Now, let's just be real for a second. I mean, Jesus knows that perfection outside of him and in heaven one day is totally out of reach for us. You and I can't achieve perfection on our own. The Bible says that all of us fall uh, fall short. uh, Excuse me, all sin, all of us, we fall short of the glory of God. We all sin. That I'm a sinner, uh, that you're a sinner, that every single one of us is a sinner. And that's why that Jesus matters. It's why you and I need Jesus in our lives. And as Jesus teaches here to a group of people like you and me, he uses these strong words, these outrageous words to really get our attention on this matter of sin. He he doesn't share these words because he's a doom and gloom kind of a guy. No, he uses these words because he's always been this one who is pointing in the right direction. He is saying, follow me. I am pointing you in the right direction. Go this way. Go that way. Live the way that I have called you to, the life that I've called you to. Now, with these words and others, too, Jesus is saying, I'm not asking you uh, to take this matter of sin so seriously in in such a way that you're trying to achieve perfection in our life, a perfection in such a way that others look to you and go, wow, you know, look how great he is or look how great she is. She never makes a mistake. Jesus is getting at What he's getting at for you and me is that um, he wants to know whether God's most important to you. That when it comes to the relationships in your life, which relationship is most important? Is it God? Is it something else? Is it God or is it someone else? What's the most important? Who's the most important person for you in your life right now? 
you know, and is sin getting in the way of that? Is some of your patterns, some of your choices, uh, some of your decisions, some of your habits, are they getting in the way of Jesus Christ, of God truly being at the very center of your life, the most important person, the most important relationship that you have? I was looking at a message that a pastor I know preached on this subject, and in that message, he explains that when it comes to this matter of really taking sin seriously, understanding it in our life, that it all begins with a proper understanding, that we've got to have a proper understanding, a proper perspective of sin and of right and wrong and the effect that it has on us, that we as Christians, we have the tendency to get a little sideways on this subject and on this issue, and that's why it's important to go to the Word of God. And one of the problems for us that arises in this subject of sin is when we define sin as nothing but rules alone. And if you're taking notes, you can write that down. It's when we define sin as rules alone because we're used to rules, right? I mean, we're used to living by them. There are rule followers and there are those who have an opinion of every rule and whether they feel like they should abide by it or not. And and our understanding of rules impacts decisions we make. It, It determines how we reward or punish ourselves or how we discipline our children. And here's how it plays out. We will we'll do this. We'll rationalize this way that if I want to do something, uh, if I'm contemplating a particular action or a decision, then I can ask, is there a rule concerning this matter? And that's one way to go about living. Christians do it all the time. We're always asking, is there some rule for this? Or is there some rule against this? And, and it can be a rule in the Bible. It can be a law. It can be a, a rule where you live or where you work. Uh, they, they, they say that, that firstborns are typically rule followers. Uh, my wife and I were both firstborns, and I remember one time we were out with a friend. She was a firstborn, too. We were driving in a car together. The car behind us was another group of friends. We recognized that none of them were firstborns, and we came to this parking lot. There were actually two parking lots, one that was very crowded and one that had a really big sign that says, don't park here. Well, the car behind us, these others that weren't firstborns, they pulled into this parking lot. They were parking in the parking lot that you weren't supposed to. And we just all looked at each other like, how can you break the rules? I mean, the sign is right there. I mean, how can you drive into that parking lot? I mean, you know, firstborns have have a tendency to abide by the rules. And, And why do rules exist? Well, because they tell us the difference between right and wrong. And if we if if rules are all we've got, though, we're in trouble. I mean, who wants to live their life a slave to rules? How much fun is that? Because sooner or later, we'll discover that there isn't a rule for every circumstance. That there isn't a rule for every situation we find ourselves in. And so even if you find yourself thinking, you know, there's nothing in the Bible that says that such and such is wrong. I mean, here's kind of how it plays out. I mean, we might rationalize and say something like, you know, the Bible doesn't say there's anything wrong with admiring God's creation, right? I mean, why call it lust? It's not lust. I'm just enjoying, you know, the beauty of what God's made or... Or what do you mean it's gossip? I mean, I'm really just sharing the truth or or even more so. I'm stating it in the form of a prayer request. You know, and if I do that, well, then it's not really gossip, is it? You know, we can't discourage that. Or you can see the loophole even in the text that we're looking at today. What does the verse say? If your right eye causes you to sin, gouge it out. I mean, there's a loophole right there. Well, he didn't say anything about the left eye. I mean, he was talking about the right eye, but he didn't talk about the left eye. Now, I know that sounds ridiculous, but we do that. We'll rationalize in those ways. And the Bible is full of all sorts of teaching and commands and promises and rules about how we should live. No doubt in that. And you can read it in such a way to hear it say, do this and don't do that. But if you live your life where you limit God's word to, well, is there a verse that specifically says, I can or I can't do that? Or what will happen if I do this? Or what will happen if I do that? Well, you'll find in many occasions that 
we can rationalize it in such a way that there's no specific rule for that. Now, here's the trend in our thinking. We'll conclude that if there's not a rule or if there's a rule that we don't like, then we'll just make decisions on the second thing. If you're taking notes, you can write this down, and that is on results, on perceived results. We'll reason and rationalize process potential decisions by asking, what will happen if I do this? Or what will happen if I do that? What will the results be? If I say this, uh, if I go there, if I treat her like this, what's the outcome going to be for me? Results. Or if someone sees me, then what? But if no one sees me, if no one finds out, well, then what's really the big deal? Again, it's about results. You know, we make decisions on what we think will result from our actions. Now, as important as it is to always consider the outcome for your actions, and I do this all the time, we should. If you base your life and decisions on what you say, you know, what will be the result? What do I think will be the result of this decision? Well, I think you might be able to see how that type of thinking falls apart on you along the way. I mean, how can we know the ramifications of every single decision that we make? Are you familiar with the butterfly effect? The butterfly effect effect goes like this. It's a phrase that's used in chaos theory to describe how small variations of the initial conditions of nonlinear dynamical systems may produce large variations in the long-term behavior of the system, right? Duh. I mean, we all know that. I mean, it's it's the butterfly effect. Uh, We read about this. What is it? It's this theory that a butterfly flapping its wings in Australia can somehow create or cause a hurricane to form in the tropics. You know, that it's really as easy as that, that one slight variation, uh, one butterfly flapping its wings in one part of the world can cause a, you know, a natural disaster uh, in another part of the world. Now, if you buy a theory like this, and I don't, um, you could say, well, if I steal a stapler or if I, uh, if, if I'm, if I create a false expense report at work, well, then I could potentially cause a tornado, you know, to happen in Texas. All right. It doesn't really happen like that, but, but that's how this goes. But, but seriously, how are, are we really smart enough to know the effects of every decision that we're going to make? I mean, how many times have you heard people say, I didn't think it was a big deal? I mean, I really didn't intend for anyone to get hurt but me. This was my decision. You know, living life, making decisions in life based on perceived results, I mean, over time you'll find it doesn't hold up. I mean, results are a bad way. Results alone are a bad way to make decisions as there really is no way to know the full implications of every decision that we make. Which brings me to the third word, a third perspective on decisions, on right and wrongs. Uh, And this really should be our perspective. Write down this word relationship. That when it comes to right and wrong, when it comes to sin and the life that God has in mind for you and me, the answer to that sort of living is found in the word relationship. I mean, ask yourself this question. What would happen in your life if in everything you did or thought about doing, you were always giving consideration to how it would affect your relationship with God? I mean, you live your life not asking, is there a rule or is there a law against this? It's not, could I get caught or get in trouble for this? But instead, you regularly ask, does doing this overlooking that, living in that sort of way, positively or negatively impact my relationship with God. I mean, right or wrong, you know, sin, evil, all of that stuff ultimately boils down to a relationship on some level. And the best way to decide between the sin, uh, to, to, to decide between sin and the way we live, in addition to considering rules and foreseeable results, is to ask, does this fit with who I am in relationship with God? 
Does it rhyme or match who I say I am in my relationship with him? I mean, Jesus knows that our relationship with God is at stake any time we sin because sin distances us from God. That any time I put something or someone else in front of my relationship with God, I, I'm jeopardizing that relationship, the, the, vow, the, the quality, the closeness of that relationship with him. Because again, we've all heard people say, well, it wasn't hurting anyone else. I mean, I, I just thought it would affect me. I mean, what's the big deal? What's the problem? I mean, that's why pornography is so dangerous. You know, whether you're married or not, it's why sex outside of marriage is against God's design. It's a blatant twisting of the truth. It's perversion of something that God created, something that was intended to be a gift between a man and a woman in a lifelong covenant with one another. But we can so easily play it off and say it's not going to hurt anyone. It only affects me. And so therefore, it's not a problem. I mean, we're going to eventually get married. So what's the big deal? But how can you know how something is going to affect you or someone else now or down the road? I mean, talk to Christ followers who were once addicted to pornography and how it can still challenge intimacy within marriage. Or talk to Christ followers who were actively or active sexually before marriage and let them share with you how it's challenged their marriage today. Now, thankfully, God is good. He is good and his forgiveness is real and grace never ends. And our God is all about do-overs and start-overs and new beginnings. But that process can be very painful. And that process of healing doesn't always go as quickly as we would like. And and so how can we know something is going to affect us down the road? Who are we to say what does and doesn't have an impact on God? Uh, Maybe this will help. One author says it this way. I've shared this story a few times before. And so if you've heard it before, I apologize. It's the best story I've got. but, But here's what one writer says about sin. He says, sin is like this. Imagine you're at home visiting your parents when one morning you're awakened by the aroma of coffee and bacon. Downstairs, your family is gathered around a table with all your favorites, eggs with cheddar cheese, bacon and sausage, fresh fruit, pancakes. They're chatting and smiling, and your dad puts down his paper and calls you over to take a seat. Then you see your mom closing the oven and turning around with a fresh pan of cinnamon rolls in her hand. With a quick smile and a wink, she sets the pan right next to you. It's the best breakfast you can remember, and you stuff yourself. And afterwards, you wipe your mouth and you get up from the table and you walk right over to your mom and you spit directly in her face. And that spit drips down her face, her eyes closed and mouth open in disbelief as she pulls up her apron to wipe the spit away. You know, this writer, you know, Jesus says, that's what sin's like. That's what sin is like. That's what sin does. That every sin we commit, the big daddy sins and the little white lie sins. Why? Because it's about the relationship. It's about this relationship that we have with God that every time we spit, it's like we're spitting into the face of our heavenly father. We're saying, God, I know that you have given all of this for me. I know that you want the very best for me. But this is what I want. And Jesus just makes it very clear that this is what sin is like to my father in heaven. Real quickly, let's look over a few verses on what God's word has to say to us about sin. Uh, Psalm chapter 14, verse 3 says, All have turned aside. They have together become corrupt. There is no one who does good, not even one. Psalm 143, verse 2 says, Do not bring your servant into judgment, for no one living is righteous before you. 1 John chapter 1, verse 8 says, if we claim to be without sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. I mean, again, these verses reveal that there is a problem with sin. They're very uplifting, aren't they? You know, all of us sin. Who can stand before God? Ephesians 4, 30 gets even better. What does that sin do? 
Verse 30 says, and do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. This gives us insight that even we can grieve God. That with my choices and my actions, that I can grieve God. That I can put distance, relational distance between me and him with my choices, my words, my actions. You know, we can grieve the spirit of God. And if Jesus Christ is your savior, I mean, you belong to him. I mean, the Bible is clear that you and I are sons and daughters of God. We are adopted and no one, nothing can take that away from you. You know, this reminds us that sin isn't wrong simply because a rule's been violated. It's not that you're going to be in big trouble when your father gets home. Jesus is saying that we belong to God. Our lives were purchased and ransomed at an incredible price that you and I are sons and daughters of the Most High. Paul says this again in 1 Corinthians six nineteen to 20. He says, do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit? That God himself lives inside of you, who is in you, whom you receive from God. You are not your own. Verse 20, you are bought at a price. That price was Jesus Christ. He bought your life. Should we keep on sinning? No. Therefore, honor God with your body. In everything you do. In everything you say. In all decisions. Don't tolerate sin. Don't let it have this place in your life. Now, in the book of Matthew, we read about one of Jesus' closest followers and friends. It's a guy by the name of Peter. Uh, You've heard of Peter before. Maybe Peter makes this courageous statement at the Last Supper that he won't ever turn his back on Jesus. He promises that it'll never happen to him, even going as far as to say, even if all others fall away, I won't fail you. Well, if you know the story, a short time later, Jesus is arrested. And while most of his followers run for their life, Peter sticks around and follows closely behind. You know, he's in the crowd that's formed. Someone notices Peter and says, hey, wait a second. You're with Jesus, aren't you? And he replies, no, no, I, I don't know him. And it might not have seemed a big deal to Peter when he denied Christ. I mean, for him, it's like, well, I'm, I'm not going to be any good to Jesus if I get thrown into jail too. And, and so the crowd carries on. And then again, someone says, hey, wait a second. You're with Jesus, right? You're one of his followers. No, I, I don't know the man. And, and I don't know if he realized at that point that he had now denied, denied Christ twice. But he remembered those words, Peter, before the rooster crows, you'll deny me three times. But again, maybe he reasons, rationalizes him to himself. Well, that doesn't really count. It's, he didn't hear me say it. But then again, it happens a third time. And someone says, hey, you were with Jesus. And the scriptures record Peter's words. He says, no, I don't know the man. I don't know if you can see the escalation here or see the buildup. And the Bible says that at that moment, the rooster crowed. And somehow from where Jesus was being held captive, he looks across the crowd and he catches Peter's eye. And they exchange this look, and Peter looks into the eyes of Jesus, and, and I guess you could say it's almost like he spit directly in the face of his Savior, the one that he said he would never deny. And the Scriptures say that the pain was so great that Peter ran away and he wept. I mean, he, he was crushed. He torn up on the inside. Now, I don't know about you, but if I think I were Peter, if I were to think I were Peter, I would rather have my eye gouged out in that moment than to look in those painful eyes of someone that I claim to love so much. And Peter was destroyed inside, and he knew he had distanced himself from the person he swore to stand by to the end. But it all came upon him so quickly. I mean, boom, now he's weeping over the relational distance that he had created, this betrayal. And as I read those words, I think to myself, maybe that's why Jesus chose such strong words when he talks to us about sin and what ought to be our reaction to sin, that you and I would be better off to cut off our hand or our foot or to gouge out an eye, anything but sin. I mean, why would we allow anything to create distance between us and God? I mean, he's the one who loves us most. 
the most important relationship for us in this world. Quickly, you know, in Jewish culture, the right hand and the right eye represented a, a person's best assets. All right, they were the most valuable to you. The right eye represented one's best vision or one's best skills. And so Jesus' point here is that we should be willing to give up anything, anything for him, whatever's necessary, even the most cherished things we possess, if doing that will protect us from evil. Because from Jesus' perspective, nothing is so important that it should ever stand in the way of your relationship, my relationship with God. Take that fork in your hand again. I won't ask you to hold it up to your eye. But just take that fork in your hand for a moment and hold it and ask yourself this question. What is it right now that is getting in the way of your relationship with God? What is it that's putting distance between you and him? I mean, what's the sin in your life? What's the sin that you're aware of? I mean, big or small of the sin that you continue living in or you've been overlooking of the sin you've been hiding from, whether it be sexual sin it could be greed, gossip, critical attitude, wanting what you don't have. Sin is a God substitute, as one person says. It's anything that you allow to take the place of God in your life, first place in your life. As you look at that fork, as you hold it in your hand, what, what's in first position right now in your life? Is it God or is it something else? Anything but God. It's sin. Now, with that in mind, Jesus says, gouge it out. It's got to go. Now that you've understood what it is, it has to be removed. If your hand, your foot, or your eye is causing you to sin, get rid of it. And so that means that if your credit card is causing you to overspend right now and enslaving you to debt, it might be time to cut up that credit card. Just get rid of it. Uh, if your computer right now is your pathway to pornography or an inappropriate relationship, it might be time to get rid of that computer. If your smartphone is stealing away time that your spouse deserves or your children deserve, get a flip phone. If your living girlfriend is causing you to compromise your values, move her out, get out, or remove or end the relationship. Now, we respond and say, seriously, I mean, what about my, I, I can't cut up my credit card. Yes, you can. Or I need my computer for email or for paying bills. No, there are other ways. Well, it's most convenient if we live together. I mean, we can't afford to live in two different places. You know, Jesus never said it would be easy. He didn't promise it would be easy for us. And I think that's why he chose such a gruesome example. Gouge your eye out. He is saying there is nothing more precious than your eyes, how important they are to survival. But Jesus says, you know what? In the grand scheme of things, nothing else matters. Nothing else matters more than your relationship with God. In the end, it is the only thing that will count. As we wrap up back to Peter, the Bible says that he went away and wept. And I don't think he left and wept because he was feeling sorry for himself. I think he felt the intense pain. I mean, have you ever hurt someone you loved so badly and you know it and realize it? And what's your first response? Well, if you're a man, especially, I mean, how can we repair this? How can we take care of this as soon as possible? All I want to do is fix the problem. That must have been Peter. And, and the best part of that whole story continues on at another point in scriptures. Uh, it's the next time that Jesus and Peter have an opportunity to sit down and have a conversation. It's after Jesus had been crucified, raised from the dead. And, and while Peter's excited to see Jesus over this meal that they're about to share, you know that it had to be a little awkward. Like there's that one matter that you know is going to come up at the dinner table. It's only a matter of when it does. And it does. And Jesus asks him, do you love me? He says that to Peter, do you love me? Notice he doesn't say, you should be ashamed of yourself. He doesn't say, how dare you, Peter? Or dude, you know, you really let me down in the moment. No, he says, do you love me? 
And why does he ask this question? Because Peter's sin at the very heart was not about rules or results. It was about the relationship. I mean, Peter had distanced himself from Jesus and it hurt. It hurt both Jesus and it hurt Peter. You know, sin does what it does even when we don't feel it all the time. And even when it seems like no one will find out or no one will get hurt, there is one who knows. And there is one who is hurt by my actions, by your actions. Why does it hurt him? Because he loves us like he does. Now, what is our response to sin? Again, if you're taking notes real quickly here, it's repentance. I wish we had more time with this, but we don't. Repentance means that if you're heading in the wrong direction, get on the right path. It's not too late. Get on the right track. Repentance is recognizing your sin. It's what go, it's going on maybe in some of you right now that you recognize the sin and you realize your need for Jesus and for his forgiveness now, maybe more than ever before. It's realizing that it's not just about rules violated or about who gets hurt. It's about the relationship. It's realizing that you've taken the relationship for granted and we want that sin taken away. We want the relationship restored much in the same way as it was restored for Peter. Now, can you and I have confidence that our God will do that for us? First John 1 John 1.9 gives us that confidence. It says, if we confess our sins, what? He is faithful. Oh, those words are easy to rush by, but don't do it. If we confess our sins, he is faithful. I mean, he never fails. He never lets us down. He won't hold it against us. He is faithful and just and will forgive us our sins and purify us from all unrighteousness. Why can he do this? Well, because the solution to the problem of sin is Jesus. Uh, He's the greatest decision that you can ever make in your life. But he's that Savior that you and I, for those who know him as Savior, have to keep coming back to over and over again. He's the solution to the problem of sin, my sin, your sin, for us all. 1 Peter 2.24 says, He himself, Jesus Christ, bore our sins in his body on the tree so that we might die to sins and live for righteousness. By his wounds, you have been healed. Let's pray. And God, I pray that you would lead us from here. And I pray that you would do immeasurably more uh, with these words today that all I could ever hope for or imagine, that your spirit, which is real and lives inside of us, that know Jesus Christ as Savior, that you would take the time with us, that we would take that time with you to hear these words today, to consider what they mean for me, for us, and go and change, go in a new direction seek repentance and confession in our lives so that we can be restored to you. God, I pray that you would be the most important relationship for all that are here. I pray for those who are here this morning that don't know you as Lord and Savior. And I pray that in the midst of all these words today that they might be able to find the good news in there, that you loved us so much that you sent Jesus Christ as our Lord and Savior, that you will forgive us, that we will never ever be the same ever again if we're willing to put our trust and our faith in you. God, if there are those that are here today that are asking that question of themselves, I pray that you would draw them to you, that they would know you and seek that forgiveness and that love in their life. Change us, God. Change us so that we see and believe and always know that our relationship with you is the most important. We give you all the praise in Jesus' name. Amen.